1: Find a location near you at bankeofamerica.com
0: slash talk to us.
1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
0: The podcast where
2: we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it.
0: Welcome to to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm John Rojas, and once again, we are here without Chris Stemp. I know I told you last week that Chris would be back and... With reason for why he was absent, but he is gone again this week, and I'm going to keep you in suspense yet another week. If you really want to know why Chris has been out, uh, shoot him a message on Twitter or email him and find out. It's big enough news that I think he should be the one sharing, but I'll just leave it at that. This week we're going to tackle a topic that probably isn't on the front of your mind or you don't think about it too often, but it's rust. Yes, that's right. Sounds boring, but it's not. It's rust. We're going to be speaking with Johnny Waldman, who wrote the book Rust, The Longest War. I know what you're thinking. Oh, rust, how important could it be? How interesting could this be? But if you stop and think about it, it really is a problem that's been plaguing us for a long time, and the Pentagon refers to it as the pervasive menace. Rust takes out cars, bridges, ships, houses, you name it, even the Statue of Liberty. It costs America more than $400 billion per year, but yet most of us never think about it. In this interview, though, Johnny really gives us a nice little science lesson about rust, but also gives us a look into how canning companies deal with rust, how the Pentagon deals with rust, and it really is this interesting thing that, you know, not too many people think about. All right, well, sit back, enjoy, prepare to learn something new. Here's our interview with Johnny Waldman.
2: Johnny, thanks so much first for being on the show. Excited to talk to you about what I might say is one of the weirdest topics we will cover on this show in its five-year history.
1: <laughs> I yeah. love it.
2: Great. You know, in the intro, I started out saying, what is the most na- deadly natural disaster and most costly and all this stuff? But when you talk about rust, everyone just goes, hey, wh- Like, what is that? Why-, why Why'd you just pull that one on me? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I'm
2: sure you're used to that response by now.
1: I am. I'm also I've got I've gotten good at and maybe journalists have to do this. I've gotten good at realizing what we assume we know a lot about only because it's familiar, not because we're particularly smart or astute about it. So rust is one of those things that you see everywhere. You think you know it. But in fact, that's like our little, our brain's way of saying, here's a thing you shouldn't bother thinking about because you see it all the time.
2: Yeah. Well, and I actually, one of the real reasons I wanted to talk to you is because I feel like the kind of journalism you did with this book and bringing this topic to light is becoming more prevalent, more popular, but it's just as necessary because we're all plugged in. We know so much about what's going on, but much of it is filtered so that we only see the flashy, sexy things, not necessarily things like Rust, which cost us $400 billion plus a year. Right. Well, I'd love to
1: hear what you think, <laughs> yeah.
2: what, what branch of journalism you put me in. Well, I would put you in kind of the, that branch where it's like, I'm trying to think of an example. But So I just interviewed somebody the other day who wrote a, a book about how dogs perceive the world. Kind of unearthing some of the less popular or less promoted ideas in the world.
1: Yeah, I think that's important. I think uh, I would, I'm not sure why anybody would write if it was already all out there. So one of my favorite things, and I'm sure you get this from all the writers you talk to, you know, uh, I'm not that into the internet. I actually quit Facebook for a couple years while I was writing the book. Um, I kind of can't stand Wikipedia. Um, I'm looking for people who have stories that are not online. Ideally, they're not in magazines. Uncovering stuff, digging stuff up, finding, bringing stuff to the light of day—that's that's that's what I wanted to do. And it's there's a number of writers who do this, but I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to add to what we already know. Especially even better, instead of going after some unusual, unlikely, extreme event, I wanted to go after something common, ubiquitous, kind of so obvious that it's unseen.
2: Hmm. See, and that's interesting because I would never consider rust so obvious. Maybe (laughs) maybe that's just because. I don't know, like I'm in D.C. and, and then the, in a suburb of D.C. it's fairly new. I don't see rust that often. Yeah. So
1: I guess that's how I felt too. I, I'm, I'm from D.C. I, I was really into science in high school. Um, I learned that it's a chemical reaction between <laughs> oxygen and metal and you need water present to help electrons go from here to there. And then I sort of filed it away. I called it, you know, like we all do with stuff in high school as like, well, that's not totally relevant to what I'm going to do with my life. And I've learned to pay attention to moments, like aha moments. And I had an aha moment in San Francisco, probably in 2009. And it resulted, maybe I was a bad learner when I was a kid. Maybe I, you know, I was really good at learning stuff from a book, but the real world was kind of too much. And now when the real world gets exciting or, or interesting or curious, I stop and I go, wait a minute, I i had never thought about that before. And so I had that moment where I said, I better I better stop and examine what, what exactly surprises me here.
2: Yeah, that reminds me of I was listening to some podcast the other day and they said, oh, if I could just go back to college, I would pay so much more attention because basically being given the time to read good books and then have good discussion on those books – Seems fascinating now. And like for me, I laugh because I love talking to authors and learning random things on a daily basis. But in college, I could care less. And it's like we you know, you said maybe I just wasn't a great learner. I, I don't know what it is about our youth where we don't want to spend time investigating some of the more interesting parts of life.
1: You know, it's hard. I was, I was was First of all, I was never a good writer. I, I didn't even like reading through most of high school. I think the Odyssey was the first book. I said, hey, this is a cool story. But that's like the prototype classic narrative. So if I didn't like that, I was probably screwed from the get-go. So I was lucky. You know, I, I took a couple years between college and grad school, and I, I knew I wanted to go into journalism for a funny reason. I probably couldn't decide what one thing to do. So I thought if I go into journalism, I never have to make that decision. I can do whatever I want to do for three or four years at a time. Um, but doing science journalism up in Boston allowed me to read a ton of books and do just what you sort of said you missed in college. And I I was actually just going through, I keep a pretty detailed list of books I want to read and books I've read. And the list of books I read in 02 and 03 is really long because my job was basically to just soak it all up and and figure out how I wanted to add to that pretty substantial list of good stuff that's out there.
2: Wait, what kind of books were these? Or what, what, when you said, that's interesting when you say, see what was out there and add to it what what do you mean by that
1: so some of my favorites there's a, there's Ted Conover who is sort of the king of experiential journalism he he wanted to know what it was like to sneak into america so he ditched his passport and his license and he went to mexico and three times he snuck into the states and wrote about what it's like to hire a coyote and how how people sneak into this country when he wanted to write about um he wanted to profile a prison guard at sing sing in new york so he applied to the prison system and they denied his application. So he just applied to be a prison guard and he got the job and he wrote, he wrote a fantastic book that was shortlisted for a bunch of prizes about what it was like to be a prison guard. And he, he stopped when it started messing up his relationship with his wife and his kid. Uh, he sort of, so I read all of his stuff. I read probably half of John McPhee's stuff where, in which he, he's, he's sort of my all time favorite and I, I probably won't be able to do him justice. In, in a couple sentences here, I read all of Richard Preston's stuff, He's um he's very much in the mold of McPhee. I read stuff like Dispatches about Vietnam, which is a lot of second person kinda can you believe this, can you believe that when you're doing this, when you're you know, all all the second person stuff.
2: So so very much in that journalistic, you know, uh like what do you call experiential journalism? That that's well, what you were so- diving into.
1: Conover is really good because he's first person. I was here. I saw this. This guy did this thing when I was standing next to him. McPhee backs very far away from first person. In fact, there's a there's kind of a famous story in which he he was reluctant to even put the word I into a book once. And his, and his editor said, come on, you have to. So he, he he said, fine, I'll put it in there twice just so it doesn't stand out that one time. <laughs> uh, there's guys like uh, Richard Kapuścinski who's kind of got a he, – he died five years ago. But he's probably one of my all, you know, top five favorites, and his style is a little. People have accused him of sort of faking the details, but it's so evocative; it's it doesn't feel like he's faking it. But I, it's hard to tell sometimes if he was taking notes or if he was recording stuff or how exactly. Anyway, I read I read a whole bunch of stuff, and I I dove into Joe Mitchell and I dove in dove into um, Martha Gellhorn Hemingway's. Uh, I forget if it's first or second, probably his first wife who probably taught him how to write, but you know, you just dive into this stuff and you, you, you're not going for knowledge anymore. You're going for style and you're going for effect that stuff has. And so undoubtedly the way I write is influenced by all this stuff that I was once, that I once, you know, saw and, and decided
2: I liked. Gotcha. Well, so now that we've kind of covered an area that I did want to cover, which was just this idea of journalism, tell me about how you came to this book about Rust.
1: Okay, that's a good story. So I was about to turn 30, living in San Francisco. As I said, with grad school, I picked journalism because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And so I'd worked at magazines and newspapers and websites and radio stations, and I even helped at a, a public television production company. I worked at some science museums and all the time I'm working with, you know, true stories, actual facts and, and different ways of shaping it and telling stories. And I was, uh, two buddies and I, two very adventurous friends and I, we, we sort of thought we're either going to climb Mount Everest or we're going to do something crazy. And we decided to try to sail around the world and we didn't have much money. And for about the cost of less than the cost of a new car, each of us put in mm, 20 grand. And we ended up with a 30 year old sailboat, just as old as we were. And, The best boat we could afford also had a lot of maintenance issues that we knew we'd have to fix. Um, One of my buddies is a physics guy. He's actually working at a national lab doing physics research. And he's very meticulous. And when we took the boat out, you know, we took her for a test drive, like a a sea trial. And I remember we took her out, and the good news was that she floated. The bad news was that, like, everything on the boat that could have rusted had rusted, Hmm. And so my, my buddy, Matt had this graph paper notepad and he just filled up that notepad on our, on our first two hours on this boat with things to fix, things to repair, things to diagnose. And the, the two classic, I mean, I guess there's three parts of that story that, that really got me. One is that when we were motoring out of the marina, the very first time we took the boat in the water, that engine, the diesel engine overheated because the heat exchanger was caked up with rust, but we didn't know why. We just knew we were redlining this, this engine that we didn't yet own. So so we took it really easy, and then we turned off the engine and started sailing, and then we started testing the sails, and to do that, we, we reefed the mainsail, and we, that's when you yank down the sail and make it smaller, which is what you do in a storm. And you connect this grommet to a big hook on the mast, and um, we did that and then yarded up on the sail, and this hook went bing off into the Sea of Cortez. So Matt added to his list, you know, buy a new reef hook below diagnose engine. And we discovered that the water tanks were leaking and we discovered that the wires didn't conduct current. We, we found pretty much everything on this boat had rusted in some way or another, even stuff made of stainless steel. And so we kind of had this brutal awakening of, of, yep, there's a lot more maintenance than we ever thought. Our bank accounts are going to shrink much more than we ever thought. And after two years, as I said, with, with journalism and kind of bouncing around, I was sort of blogging about it for Outside Magazine and blogging is really freeing. I think,
2: you know, I wasn't, I wasn't
1: really making a name for myself, but I was, um, I was granted such freedom with blogging that allowed me to, it allowed me to steer whatever direction I wanted. And so I kind of dorked out on metal. And I think that's really important. I think if you write stories and editors always say, "Well, will do this, what about the meaning there? What is, how does this suggest some bigger thing we want to get at? But then the editor is taking away your own inspiration. And I, I was lucky enough to be able to follow mine. So I, as it happened, I, I had a, <laughs> this is so funny, I had a pro deal just up the road in Berkeley with a company that's distributed fasteners, you know, nuts and bolts and screws. And I went there so many times, you know, I'd go there with a bag of old rusty stuff and I'd say, I need to replace these. And he'd go dig around and the owner of the store would find me replacements. And one day he said, hey, do you want to see something cool? So of course I said, yeah. And he showed me the the mechanical report, that a fastener test report, which is what comes from the manufacturer of bolts and it has to do with how strong the metal is, how it's tested, how they know how strong it is. And that's when I said, Oh man, the, you know, basically I should have been an engineer, but I, I'm not, but that's what allowed me to sort of dive into it. And so I wrote about some of the metallurgical history and I wrote about some of the decisions we were making on the boat. Cause everything on a boat is a compromise, which is kind of the nature of engineering is you trade off one thing for another thing. So that's how it all started is on the, on this boat that um, that we thought we'd sail around the world.
2: So, okay, so many questions asked there. For, yeah. And this, isn't, this first one isn't even a question. Maybe it's a leading question or statement. If I were planning to sail around the world, the last <laughs> thing I would do is like cut costs. I'm sure <laughs> that's crossed your mind before.
1: Well, so here's the thing. That's a good point. We, I got to say, the last thing we did is actually cut costs. We bought a boat. What we bought was basically like the Land Rover of boats. There's another boat just like it. I think it's four feet shorter. No, eight feet shorter. Remember, remember in um, the Perfect Storm. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Or probably,
2: probably not a great movie to be referencing. As yeah, but here's the great part.
1: So there was a couple from I want to say they were uh, they were from the Mid Atlantic somewhere, and every year they go out and they sail from, let's say, from New York down to the Bahamas. And they went out this year, even though the weather looked bad, and off of Virginia one of the guys' companions freaked out and called May, you know Mayday to the Coast Guard. And the way it works is if you Mayday, you have to get rescued. You can't you oh, can't wow. see the helicopter and be like, yeah, we're good, never mind. Like you have to get off the boat. So off of Virginia, the, everyone ditched the boat, including the captain who really didn't want to. And this boat, in like the worst storm you've ever read about, with no one at the helm, shows up undamaged on the beach on Assateague Island. And that's the kind of boat that we bought basically. Mm. I mean this is a burly boat. They don't make them as burly that's the reason we bought a 30-year-old boat is because they don't make them this burly anymore and my buddies and i we're all rock climbers and so we're kind of we're kind of obsessed with doing things right and safely and kind of by the book you know you don't you don't drop carabiners on the ground you don't step on your rope you don't you don't tie weird knots you don't put the rope in the back of your car if there's gasoline in a tank you know you're very industrious about the things that you rely upon so so yeah we were We lost more money than we thought, but we also kind of, we went, we went freaking gangbusters repairing this boat and getting it up to spec. And like I said, my friend, Matt, the meticulous one, he made this list of all these things that we wanted on the boat, all these features. And by the end of two years, we had like the nicest boat in that marina in San Francisco. It was capable. Nothing, as I hear, nothing basically broke between when they left and when they got to Australia.
2: Okay. So, so the idea was we're going to buy this tank of a boat and then we're going to get it in tip top shape. You yes. kind of knew there were going to be some things going into it that you had well, to Well, so
1: that's the funny part. Is, so my friend Matt's really meticulous, and I'm kind of like, let's let's wing it and see what happens, because that'll be an adventure, which is maybe also why I'm a writer. Hmm. Um, and there, Matt and I butted heads a lot. He wanted to do things right, and I was kind of like, eh, half the fun is fixing it as we go. And to Matt's credit, you know, he did it, we did it his way. It, it cost a little more than I was comfortable with, but Matt's way was probably right. And it made me the way I am. I'm, I very much see things his way right now.
2: Sure. So, okay, I I heard you mention they went to Australia. It sounded like you did not join them.
1: I did not join them. It's a long, long story of, uh, you know, friendships go sour sometimes. A lot of things come up. The the idea had originally been that three dudes, three single guys would get in a boat and have a big last adventure before life took hold. But life kind of took hold sooner. And Matt actually got, uh, he got married right before the trip. And one of the other guys got into a pretty serious relationship, so it, it all it I wasn't getting on a boat with like my friend and his wife. That just seemed like I'd be a third wheel. So it, the circumstances changed, and we sort of made do the best we could.
2: So he went with his wife, mm-hmm. but not, yeah. <laughs> So, so it was, it, wait, wait. So it went from three single. It went from three single guys to a, a couple.
1: Yes, and then the third guy flew out there in Australia and sailed uh, across the Pacific.
2: Man. You know, that's life for 30,
1: right? Oh, no, it's
2: it's great. That's what's so amazing is every Okay, put it this way. Everyone in their 20s or I'd say most people in their 20s right now listening are going, oh, yeah, I, I have a plan to do that. Then most people around 28 to 33 are going, wow, I'm trying to do that. But life got in the way. And then at 40, people are going, yeah, that shit never works.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, you know, the, the funny thing about being a boat owner, and I say this in the book, that the, the best day of a boat owner's life is the day he buys it and the day he sells it. Those are the two oh, best yeah. days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But the funny thing is there were three of us working on this boat in the marina just across from San Francisco. And I could tell that all the guys there were jealous because we were so industrious and energetic and young. And most people, you know, they work their whole lives and then they get a boat when they're 60 or 65 and they just don't have the, they have the money, but they don't have the energy. They want to crawl around in small, nasty spaces. And it becomes this thing that you sort of winnow away your last years with. And we, we totally flipped it around on its head. And I, I think a lot of people said, man, you guys are doing it right. So well, there's and that.
0: And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com. The online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com/smartpeople. That's l-y-n-d-a dot smartpeople Listen up, everyone! Lynda.com is for problem solvers, for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. That means Lynda.com is for you. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn negotiation tactics, build a website, or boost your Photoshop skills. Whatever it is that you want to do, go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. lynda.com offers a huge array of courses, but some of the courses I recommend are growth hacking fundamentals, getting things done, and bootstrapping your business. With a lynda.com membership, you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching. You can learn at your own pace. Courses are structured so that you can watch them from start to finish or consume them in bite-sized pieces. Want to learn on the go? You can download tutorials and watch them on the go, including access on your iOS or Android device. Don't wait. Sign up today. Your Lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or or you just want to learn something new, I want you to visit lynda.com smartpeople smart people and sign up for your free 10-day trial. That's lynda.com slash smart people.
2: And, you know, I think a big moral of at least something that I take out of this story is if you have an idea, if you have a plan, if you have something kind of crazy and you don't know if it's going to work, but you you want to give it a shot, give it a shot because worst case scenario, you come out of it with a best selling book,
1: right? (laughs) I don't know if that's the worst case scenario. That's
2: a pretty good worst case scenario. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Best case scenario is, you know, maybe you sail around the world. And, and get the book, but no, I mean, it, it is, it's the, um, experiences make the most interesting stories and you never know what's going to come out of them. So here we are. And we're, we're talking about, you know, your new book, Rust, the longest war. I I think it's fascinating. And I, I love the way you wrote this book kind of almost in an essay type form talking about different stories. So let's, let's jump into, uh, Rust and, and what it is, for those of us that can't recall 10th grade yeah. science, give us a, the 101 on Rust.
1: Yeah. So can I can I back up one quick second? Because yeah, I do want to of make course. One thing. Since we were talking about writing. Yeah. The, the book is very much, it's not my experiences with Rust. You know, uh, we were talking about the writers who I liked and what I wanted to do. And I open up the book with a page and a half of just describing that boat and how I get into it. And that's it for my story. There's very little else of me in the book. I as it happens, I love Ted Conover. I love that first person stuff and I'll put myself in the book where I have to be, but it's not a book about my, my experiences with rust.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, actually you're right. And, and good. You know, thanks for, for mentioning that because the way you write it is, and we can talk about it is actually through other people's stories. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, very much. So, um, so the one Oh one, the thing, maybe the thing we wish we'd learned in high school is, um, you know, we talked about oxygen and, and, and metals interacting, um, but the thing is, oxygen is the most abundant element on Earth, and metal is mankind's most important material. And there was a moment where I thought, what the heck? So the most abundant thing on Earth is attacking our most important material everywhere all the time, and no one's written a book about this? Mm. So that, it sort of surprised me, and I, I learned a couple things. One is that you know, after hanging out with engineers basically exclusively for two years, that's one of the reasons no one wrote a book about it. It's not easy to hang out with engineers exclusively. <laughs> Um, because we learned about it in high school, we thought we knew it, but we don't. Um, what we learned in high school is that oxygen is basically trying to steal electrons from everything, everywhere. Um, and metals will give them up. That's what makes metals sort of so useful for conducting electricity. There's only so many things you can do to fight rust. You can, you can block the interaction by either coating a metal with paint or with a what's called a rust inhibitor, which is a different kind of coating. You can galvanize it, which is coating it with, um, with zinc, you can electroplate it, which is kind of like the fancy version of galvanizing, where you coat it with a, a much stronger metal. You can use anodes, which sort of sacrifice themselves to save what you want, or you can use cathodic protection, in which you pump current through the metal you're trying to save. And that's it. Like, there are no other ways to stop rust. So, that's if you were lucky, you learned that last part in high school, but you probably learned the first part of oxygen and metal and reduction and, and electrons.
2: I'm, I'm still trying to remember, like, I don't think I remembered. Or I don't think I learned hardly anything about rust, even as you say it's So in passing, oh, it's when it gives up its electrons. I'm like, yeah, I, I didn't know that. Were you like a
1: like a physics or chemistry guy? Did you like that stuff? <laughs> no,
2: not at all. I like math. <laughs> I like math. But, you know, yeah. When you set out to learn more about rust and you determined I'm going to put this in a book, where do you start at that point? Because I'm assuming you had limited knowledge.
1: I had very limited knowledge. Are you kidding? You could qualify my knowledge as extremely limited. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But you could also characterize my, I don't know, my determination or stubbornness is pretty high. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I knew I was a good writer. I I, I never thought I was capable of a book. In fact, in grad school, I didn't even, I don't think I devoted like 10 seconds to the idea of writing a book. I I assumed magazines have all the sex appeal, right? I mean, you're you're a cover story, you get Hmm. the author on on that page. And all of a sudden, in the middle of that boat project, I realized this could be a book. But that happened when I met Dan Dunmire. It happened when I talked to admirals in the Navy who told me that they want to change the attitude among sailors. They want to develop a questioning attitude because whatever we're doing now isn't working. So all of a sudden, I realized I had way more than enough to blog about and probably enough to write a book about. So I wrote a book proposal. Uh, Actually, what I did is I applied for a fellowship at the University of Colorado and my the project I wanted to complete was writing a book proposal, which is, a you know, it's a 60-page document. It's basically a really detailed outline and one or two complete chapters. So that took me most of a year. And then I took that document and I sent it around to all these different literary agencies. And I made the list of agencies I wanted to contact by going through the back of my favorite books. And most, of, most authors, they say, hey, thanks to my agent, you know, so-and-so. So I made a little list, just like my friend Matt. <laughs> and i called them all up and i said hey i've got this proposal like you want me to email it to you or, or mail it in the post office or like you want a pdf or a word doc like what do you want and um and the funny thing was i'd say about half of them a the secretary picks up the phone and she says i'm sorry we're not we're not taking any new submissions right now and i and this is just me i'd be like well i'm not some hack like it's a really good proposal because i was really <laughs> proud of it and and they were like oh yeah oh sorry our email is right here and I couldn't believe it. I guess if you're a shy person, you're not cut out to be a journalist in the first place, and that's kind of sad because these are like the agencies are like the windows into making it happen, and they do have a wall up. Maybe because in the modern world, they're bombarded with people writing memoirs about I don't know their 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 gardening hobbies. Mm-hmm. Three agents liked it. One sort of liked it, but he thought it was too cute. And I suppose if no one else had nibbled, I could have changed it and sold it to him. But lucky uh one guy really loved it and he and I worked together and we modified the proposal over a few months and then when we decided it was done you know agents he he did what agents do which is they go hang out with editors and have lunch and say what do you think about this idea check it out and i think it took him like 10 days to sell it and i got an advance and and then um i actually got a grant on top of that but that's then you know, your bank account goes way up and then you spend the money writing the book for the next couple of years.
2: Wow. So, yeah. so you, you, you have this newly flushed bank account and you're ready to tackle rust. So two questions then. First, what's the first thing you do now that you know, okay, it's time to really get in depth about rust. <laughs> and then the second thing was, I'm really interested in when, as you were going through this process, what did you find the most surprising thing about rust
1: god they're, you know they're good questions and they're hard questions yeah. and some some of it's like faded away into this big memory mush pile i wish i remembered in detail what exactly it was like starting out i don't i don't suffer from like the weary what am i gonna do i how about this my my favorite writer as i mentioned john mcphee he he happened to come to boulder to give a talk about a book he wrote 40 years ago And he addressed the difference between writer's block and reporter's block. And he said every time – he said, like everybody, if I sit down and I need to write, I I get all antsy, I can't do it, I get fidgety, I don't know what to say, I don't know where to start. And he said he's learned over the years that if that happens, it usually means he needs to go report because he never gets reporter's block. And this is why journalists are the way they are. They want to go see the world and experience stuff and meet new people and find stuff out. So – you kind of say, well, I got all this money, come from my book advance. I might as well just go talk to everybody and see everything I can and finagle my way into can school and under a pipeline and just like throw my hat everywhere I can and see what happens. So you do that for a long time.
2: I like that. That, no, that, that is what I was wondering. You just kind of went, you went straight in, into the reporting, just trying to learn. Yeah. It's like you dive into
1: 12 different pools at one time and, and you're, you're managing your calendar in such a way that Hopefully one. I mean, I, <laughs> I, went, I drove to Alaska to go watch them inspect the biggest pipeline in the West. And it turns out they delayed the inspection for nine months. So I drove back down here. <laughs> wow.
2: <laughs> and, and so in all of this hands on research, this reporting style you were doing, what was kind of most shocking about a topic that is not sexy at all in Rust?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the pipeline, I think pipelines wins that prize. Cairns was exciting. It was cool. The Statue of Liberty, I learned about sort of the dramatic um, way in which that that um, restoration was sparked by kind of an act of civil disobedience. Uh, but the pipeline one really opened my eyes. First of all, no one ever gets the access I got to the Alaska Pipeline. So I, I saw some pretty incredible things. But I also learned about the future of a state, which depends entirely on oil making it from the North Slope through a long tube to Valdez where it goes on ships and gets sent to California to be refined. That tube is the lifeline of Alaska. And I, you don't think about a pipeline that way. You think, eh, whatever, it's just a tube. They build another one. In Alaska, they won't just build another one. There's no other way to get that oil out. You can't, there's no deep sea port on the North Slope. You can't mm-hmm. get ships in there and fill them up and it's ice covered half the year anyway. So taking care of that tube, all of a sudden, as you said before with cans, I said, this is a story about corrosion, but it's also a story about you know the survival of a whole state. Hmm. And I don't think most people realize quite how tenuous that pipeline survival is as, as the flow of oil decreases 5% every year. And as it gets harder to inspect that pipeline with, with a giant robot called a smart pig. So that, I don't know, that to me was the most surprising. And that was my favorite chapter to report, too.
2: Well, that is one thing. I really enjoyed that chapter. And we're going to leave that as a teaser for hmm. everyone who's liked it thus far and wants to learn more, the book is Rust, The Longest War. So one of the things that I think did make it real to me was when you talk about, when you, you constantly bring it back to how it's affecting us in our life. But one that everybody has interaction with is when you talked about cans.
1: Yeah.
2: And the Coke can Is one that really blew my mind because everybody knows how just corrosive and disgusting Coke is. How can it sit in these paper thin containers for years and not just eat away at it? Where if you put it in a bowl with a tooth, it'll destroy that thing.
1: Yeah, totally. Or a nail or a staple or a set of keys, you know, pick, pick your thing. It'll, it'll, it'll eat it away.
2: Yeah. So tell us about how that
1: works. Well, so that's a great example. Again, of something you see all the time and you take for granted, it turns out the can is like the most marvelous thing ever engineered by man. But because you go to the liquor store and buy it for eight bucks, you know, a six pack for eight bucks and, and have it sitting there, you just, you, your brain learns to process it as like, I guess that's not a big deal, but it's a huge deal. So, I live in Boulder, Colorado. I happen to be just up the road from the world's largest can maker. And I heard about a thing called can school. And as a writer, that's exactly what I want to hear about. So I, I called them up. I said, Hey, can I go? And they said, yes. And then they called me back and said, no. And that's partly because I asked a few too many questions. And that's because the way we keep cans from corroding gets kind of controversial and sensitive. And so I probably, asked a few too many sensitive questions. They said, you can't go. And then they goofed up and they sent me an email saying, Oh yeah, the thing is starting on Tuesday. Here's directions. Here's the, you have to wear closed toed shoes, you know, see you there and we'll, we'll have snacks. So of course I went. And when I got to the front door of the, you know, it's a fortune 500 company. They said, your name's on the list. And I said, well, that's, that is so strange, but it, I don't mind, you know, like maybe you guys goofed up, but I gave them a chance to kick me out. They didn't kick me out. I, I, um, I almost got kicked out on the second day when they realized they goofed up. <laughs> but all this controversy comes from, you know, we call it aluminum cans, but really they're plastic cans, which should surprise nobody because you can't put battery acid in a layer of aluminum as thick as a piece of paper and expect that aluminum to survive. And this plastic, like so many plastics, is 80% BPA. That's the chemical that makes plastic plastic. And I don't know. Do you have any kids, Chris?
2: I have one on the way.
1: Do you have any baby bottles?
2: Yes, they are BPA-free. <laughs> yeah, so you know
1: about BPA. It's an yeah. endocrine disruptor. It's, it's been linked to all kinds of terrible cancers and mammals. I, there's a lot of science in the book. Um, the FDA has a threshold below which BPA is deemed permissible in our foods and beverages, and it gets there because some little bit of the chemical – basically seeps out and gets into, you know, because it's in contact with foods and beverages and cans, and so some of it then ends up in us. It turns out that the FDA's threshold, at least according to one prominent scientist, is off by like one to eight orders of magnitude. So where the FDA says you can have half a part per billion of this stuff and be fine, and it's safe, and you don't have to worry, and you can sleep well at night, this guy says well, actually it's not half a part per billion, it's like half a part per quadrillion. Now the FDA guys, they they say that's insane. Like we're we're pushing the limits of biochemical testing capacities, like we couldn't possibly test that much. Um, and maybe someday we will, but the scary part was I talked to talked to a guy who has some patents on coatings. And it's because there's a kind of a different coating for every product out there. There's one for corn, one for peas, one for fish, one for spam. The one for spam is actually pretty gross. It's gotta have a, a lubricious wax so that the meat slides right out. Um, but I'm guessing you don't need spam.
2: That's so gross No, And now I'm even better because, (laughs) but, but it's cool. So the coatings have
1: to be unique for every little thing because everything reacts differently with the coating and with the can. Some things are more acidic or more corrosive than others. So they study the, the product and they study the coating and the interaction between the two very carefully. But I talked to a guy who's had some, who has some patents on these coatings and they're all the coatings manufacturers are very secretive about this stuff. It's, it's almost like they're making fracking fluid. It's, it's patented. It's all redacted in documents that I FOIA. It's, it's, you'll never get the precise details. Um, but this guy said, I know what's in it. I won't drink every can cause I'm terrified. I've seen how it can go wrong. So he won't let cans in his house. And he told me, and this is why you, you're alluding to some of the worry from that chapter and the, Oh my God, who yeah. knows this. He told me that, um, He thinks – what's the Surgeon General's warning? It now says pregnant women should not drink alcoholic beverages during pregnancy or something like that. He said it should say women should not drink canned beverages. Wow. Yeah. And that's all because of – you know it's all because we love this stuff. Our stomachs, which are lined with mucus, they can handle corrosive stuff. Our throats can handle it for like 10 seconds. But the aluminum can, this convenient vessel we put it in, cannot handle it. But it's so darn convenient – in our system, in our setup, that we say, "Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's line it with this stuff." And and we want, we don't want to know how we prevent corrosion, but corrosion is the force that makes us sort of have adhere to this manufacturing process. If it weren't for corrosion, we, you know, we'd, we wouldn't have BPA in our cans.
2: Okay, so this is great because I did want to talk about BPA as you mentioned. So, ever, I think almost everyone at this point has heard, you know, BPA is bad. Don't drink out of plastic containers. And so we go to BPA free, which I have heard varying reports on actually how safe those are. So aside from a few BPA free bottles that I have, um, I actually tend to drink out of either glass or the clean canteens, you know, like aluminum. Uh, Stainless steel. Sorry, stainless steel, um, which we'll talk about. But so to clarify, the BPA is a part of plastic that is used to coat aluminum so that it looks and feels and operates like an aluminum can without corroding.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's not that it looks like a can they make the can and then they squirt a little, you know, a couple hundred milligrams of this stuff on the inside. And it's in all food and beverage cans. There's more of it in cans that contain something corrosive like tomatoes or Mountain Dew or lemon lime soda. And there's less of it in something like beer or something mild. Hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you could buy canned water yet. I think it's in the works, but water would have very little coating in it.
2: You know, I bet that most people do not know that there's BPA in aluminum cans. Yeah, I mean, I
1: think you're right. Which that's If most people knew it, I don't think I would have had a chapter going into detail about
2: it. True. Yeah, good good point. But I mean, you know, like there's a lot of things that get written about, and you kind of know, like, like, right, like if you wrote about BPA, for example, everybody, most people have heard of that. But even I didn't know that there was BPA in a Coke can.
1: Yeah, well, so here's the crazy thing, right? So it's it's tempting to say, well, let's go to some BPA alternative, some other plastic. Mm -hmm. There, I cite a study in the book in which they found that like 500 other plastics all produce some sort of estrogenic activity. And it, it's starting to look like, and this is going to sound like a sweeping statement, but it sort of sounds like all plastics, like that's kind of the nature of plastic is they, there's something about the shape of those molecules that our body, it confuses them and, and thinks that they're, that they're hormones. And it, it I mean, hormones do crazy things to us. You, you don't want to be ingesting, ingesting hormones left and right, telling your body to turn this on or this off when, when that's not what you're supposed to be doing.
2: Right. So is there a... A, a different vessel as you put it that can deliver things like food and beverages um if we don't use we can, obviously you never use straight up aluminum can't use plastics what else is there well
1: glass is it i mean that's it glass. is. Glasses, it's hard to ship it's, right. it's heavy. it breaks it, you know i i run my back down the street and i dodge glass shards from the kids around here who yeah. throw it on the road
2: <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Huh. Okay. Interesting. So what else did you learn uh, at that can school? I'm really interested in that experience.
1: Yeah. So as we were talking about before with, you know, little, little miracles that you don't notice, think about like when you open a can, you put about four and a half pounds of pressure on that tab and you lift it up. And that tab is like a little crowbar that opens up the aperture. So it goes right when you open it. Right. Oh yeah. When you think about that aperture, there's that little thin score line. And that's what you're doing when you pull on it. You know, you're know, you breaking metal with the strength of your finger. So that score line has to be just the right thickness. Otherwise, a little kid or your grandma won't be able to open up the can. So what I heard, and this, this is what kind of, I don't know, it got my attention at can school, was that the precision that they need, that's got to be within a couple millionths of an inch to be just right. And if it's not right... All this corrosive stuff in a can gets everywhere, and then it can corrode other cans near it, like in a pallet in a warehouse. And you can lose millions of dollars of cans that way. So can companies go to great lengths to be very, very precise. And, and when I say very precise, I mean I heard people tell me that they're more precise than, like, anything we build on a spaceship. That, that this thing that you can buy for, like, a can is worth, like, a dime, and then you recycle it and get a dime back. That this is the most engineered thing on Earth. And that that's what really surprised me, because I wasn't just writing about making things. I was writing about corrosion. But but it all has to be so well made on account of corrosion.
0: And now a word from our sponsor. Smart People Podcast is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the Index Fund Revolution, and who have written some of the most important books in finance. In case you're still not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront manages over $2 billion in client assets and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. So with Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, what will you do with all your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com to get your first $10,000 managed for free. Wealthfront Inc. is an SEC-registered investor advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is the possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure.
2: You know, that actually is, I think we stumbled upon something that really stuck out in my mind, which was this idea of, as you like one of the best parts of this book and and really a lot of similar type exposés if you will when you're when you're learning about something really new and nuanced is what you discover is much broader than what you set out to discover so you were yeah. looking at corrosion but you come and learn about the beauty almost the engineering beauty of a can yeah and those are the things we don't think about often enough. And then it also gets frustrating because I'm like, why can't we use that ingenuity elsewhere to solve X, Y, Z problem?
1: Well, so that's a funny thing. And I'm glad you brought that up and uh, people, I don't want to call it like a fallacy, but like ingenuity doesn't work like that. You can't just like pick up these guys and put them there and have them solve world peace. But I do address in the book, you know, the book in a way it's about engineering, which as I said, is this big trade-off. And I I talked to a a guy at the University of Colorado who runs Engineers Without Borders. And his thing his thing is kind of a belief that that we need to re-engineer engineering, that engineers are busy fixing all these problems we don't have, making fancy new this and that. But they're ignoring all these problems we do have. So in a way, he very much wishes also that we could, we could pick up ingenuity here and drop it there and actually address problems. But in another way, that's not engineering so much as incentives. If the incentives were right, people would go... Fix certain things instead of design other things. So,
2: actually, that is almost a point I was alluding to: is that if all of these other issues that required these major feats in engineering were as lucrative as, say, making the next best can, it would yeah. get solved. You know, well, what the crazy I mean?
1: thing is, corrosion engineering is actually quite lucrative, but it also might be quite repetitive and maybe, mm. maybe not so. Um, I don't know if you come home with a warm feeling in your heart at the end of the day. I think it's 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 put into the category of maintenance in this, in this country, in this century, we think we're better than maintenance. We think maintenance is for people with blue collars. We think maintenance is kind of a pain in the butt. Um, we don't, we, you know, we don't even like the word infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think these guys that, you know, they know if, if, if your ego is solid enough that you don't really care what people think about what you do. I think a lot of people have written me and said, Oh man, I'm going to tell my kids to be a corrosion engineer.
2: Wow. Let's talk about corrosion engineering. I mean, there are things I didn't know. There's a organization, a governmental organization called the Defense for Corrosion Protection. Did I get Is that right? Is that uh, a government organization? Close.
1: In the Department of Defense, there's the Office of Corrosion Policy and Oversight.
2: Oh, okay. There you is go. Is that what you mean? Yeah. So yeah. and there's like a guy whose job is to mitigate corrosion or work on corrosion across the country. Right.
1: As it affects the, the DOD,
2: the Pentagon. Yeah. So tell right. us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah. So um, the story of how it came to be is kind of funny. Um, the National Association of, of Corrosion Engineers did a study in '01. In which they describe the cost of corrosion to the whole country, and it turns out it's like three percent of our GDP. It's a lot of money. It exacts this huge toll because, as I said, we're all better than maintenance. It's not not my problem. It's someone else's problem. So they sent their public affairs guy to DC, and um, and he went and he visited with um, with some people on the Armed Services Committee. He was looking for the staffer who worked on on defense because he figured they figured out the the group figured out that that rust cost the defense department 20 billion a year and it just so happened that the person in charge of facilities and structures was on the staff of senator daniel akaka from hawaii and if this if this assistant had been on the staff of like wyoming's senator they'd have been like rust not a problem for us you know go somewhere else but akaka said oh my god rust we got to do something about this and uh that's what started the office of corrosion and policy oversight sorry office of corrosion policy and oversight i said it too much <laughs> <laughs> and that's and and the guy the guy chosen to run it had been working on corrosion for a long time here and there but never never solely corrosion and he's not an engineer he's a pretty quirky guy he he's loud he's dramatic he's sort of awkward in public but he's super dedicated um and he uses his quirks to his advantage and everyone else in the office, he used to joke, Dan Dunmire is his name, and he used to joke, he would say, he, he said he would pity whoever they chose for that job, because it would just be brutal. And and he knew it, because all these program managers in the Pentagon, they were like, look, I'm designing like a $100 million missile, like, I don't want to talk about Rust, that's your problem, it's not mine, like, we're talking security here. And and the way Dunmire saw it is like, well, yeah, but we're also wasting a ton of money, because you, you think you're better than this. And so... Once he got his office, he's figured out ways to change the incentives in the Pentagon. And that sort of indicates why an engineer wasn't exactly what they needed. So he is our nation's corrosion czar, and he's employed a number of pretty creative strategies, as no engineer would, to fight corrosion and save our country billions of dollars.
2: And they're trying to to enact those corrosion policies on, is it mostly defense items?
1: Yeah, so um, bases... Uh, weapons, anything that the DOD deals with. And, and the cool thing is that one of the Dan Dunmire's major accomplishments is he's, he's sort of woven corrosion policy into the fabric of the DOD. So now that any project that's coming through, like the president's new helicopter or uh, a new some new jet or, or or even the space fence, it has to address corrosion before it can proceed to the next level. So everything the Pentagon is spending money on making they have to at least say that they're thinking about what they're going to do to fight corrosion.
2: Wow. I like yeah, that. Yeah, it's cool. Now, well, do we have the same types of policies in place for general infrastructure? No,
1: not at all. And so the National Academies wrote a report a couple of years ago in which they said that we should, we should do what Dan Dunmire is doing in other federal agencies.
2: Where are we suffering the biggest costs or expenses due to rust in terms of in our, in our landscape, in our country?
1: Well, the most obvious one is probably oil spills, which are pretty contentious and, and get us all riled up about anti-pipeline sentiments. I think rust is, it's if it's not number one, it's the number two threat to pipelines. But that's only because the number one threat is like accidentally digging into it with a bulldozer or backhoe. Hmm. Uh, but realistically, with our aging pipeline system, rust is a major threat. We see it in bridge collapses uh, and you... Uh, you know, it's scary. If you look at bridge, bridge collapses up on the internet, you'll, you know, due to corrosion, you'll find a long list. Um, a lot of the other examples are smaller, but they're sort of more insidious. You know, cars are a huge one. Although since about the year 2000, we've gotten much better at, at making cars that don't rust out before we want them to.
2: So it sounds like those things make up the majority of the number that you have in your book is about 400 billion a year Yeah. in rust. And so that yeah. comes primarily from things like bridges, automobiles, structures, kind of things along those lines. Sure. Yeah. Wow.
1: It's a huge cost for the Navy, but that sort of rolled into the DOD number I gave you before.
2: Right. Um, and the crazy thing is
1: the Navy thinks of Rust as the number one enemy. Like this is the most powerful nation on earth and their Navy, they've actually, I don't want to say they've admitted defeat, but they're like, look, we're, we're actually currently losing. We need to change our tactic in fighting this, this enemy.
2: Well, when you live on the water, I guess I could see how that becomes the problem.
1: Yeah. And the crazy thing is chlorine. It wants to steal electrons even more. Like it's the only thing that's worse than oxygen. And it just so happens that our oceans are full of chlorine.
2: Wow. So what, what is the standard remedy, if you will? So what does the Department of Defense use in their rust protocol? What are engineers saying we need to be doing to bridges and how are newer cars dealing with it? What, what has been the solution thus far?
1: Well, so I told you about the five, I think it's five, the five ways you can fight Rust. Right. No other ways.
2: So in a
1: way, the DoD is sort of catching up with those things. And so a lot of their money, uh, you know, and Dan Dunbar got yelled at for this because, as he likes to say, you need to spend millions to save billions. But some of the millions he spent are on really simple things like aircraft covers and dehumidifiers. But if you go fly a helicopter in some crazy corrosive place and come back and just land it on a field and let it sit there, It makes sense to wash it off, dry it, and cover it. Hmm. So they've also – the DOD has also spent a lot of money on paints, and they have pretty crazy requirements for paints. You know, you and I just need to cover stuff up and make it look pretty. The DOD needs it to be either like stealthy, like on a jet, or it's got to be non-skid or high temperature or low temperature or radar deflecting or all sorts of things. And so they spend a lot of money inventing paints that do what they want and prevent corrosion better than ever before. Hmm. Um, especially for the Navy, the Navy, actually, they, they test even more paints down in Florida and they, they keep them in little racks on the beach to see, um, how they corrode over time. And that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of cool that to this day, the best science is kind of trial and error, like find, find a paint that appears to last for 20 years and then go use it.
2: So do you know the science behind how paint prevents rust? Because, I mean, I have no idea. But I'd be yeah, interested in
1: mean, it. I don't even want to call it the science. It's the logic. The paint blocks oxygen from getting to the metal.
2: That's all it is. It seals all it, it off.
1: And an inhibitor is technically some other thing besides for paint that also latches onto the metal and keeps the oxygen from doing that.
2: Hmm. Yeah. It seems like such a easy fix to such a difficult problem. Such a,
1: well... Straightforward, a right? You, fix, you, it's a logical fix. just not easy to implement.
2: Gotcha. What, what, what hinders it?
1: Well, so the thing about some guy sent me a picture today of a radio tower in Texas. And I guess a buddy of his was trying to climb it to maintain it. And the guy in the ground poked his finger through the tower and realized the whole thing was just paint. All the metal on the inside had corroded away. So this crazy thing can happen with paint. And this also happened with the Statue of Liberty where paint can also hide and exacerbate the damage happening to the metal underneath it.
2: That's what I was wondering. So, so you can have this thing painted, but if there's any, like little hole, the rust can kind of eat away from the inside out.
1: Exactly. And so galvanizing is kind of neat because anything less than, I want to say it's the size of a nickel or a quarter, it kind of self heals. Um, But galvanizing, I talked to the head of the American galvanizing association and he thinks that we're, that we live in a country obsessed with paint and color and that Europe has more preservation at mind than we do. And and that we hate the color gray for whatever reason, he kind of can't stand that the paint industry has this huge lobbying arm, while the galvanizing industry is, you know, screaming from the sidelines trying to get some attention. But they, you know, they've they've got their own interests at heart. But they've done studies looking at the lifespan of 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 objects, and they say that over over the course of a, a bridge's life, galvanizing is way cheaper if you include maintenance. But Maybe we're stuck in this thing where we build things and we only think of the cost of building them and we don't add the cost of maintaining them there. So there's a lot of things that have to change, but the solutions are kind of already out there.
2: You know, we actually interviewed – there's a a guy who just wrote a book called Garbology, and um, it's all about – kind of garbage, but one of his basis, like the basis for his book was we're this consumer society where all we care about is, you know, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, but we don't care about what happens with it and where it goes. And it's very similar in terms of like you were talking about infrastructure or building bridges. It's like, how do we build the best bridge? But then nobody wants to talk about how do you maintain it? What happens when it falls apart? You know, and, and that is just the, the way of our society yeah and that's
1: one of the things dan dunmire in the pentagon wants to change he he always uh, we talked a lot on the phone and i followed him around as he sort of spread the gospel about fighting rust and um and he says he wants to change our culture so that we go from find and fix to predict and manage but good luck changing the human brain so that we think about managing um i remember in college i heard a guy he was talking about the word sustainability and he, and he, and he had a good point when he asked the audience, um, you know, who here, who here is married and and who is aiming for a sustainable marriage. And, you know, no one, you know, we're all aiming for, for, you know, good sex lives and, and, <laughs> you know, support and all sorts of stuff, but sustainable, that sounds pretty dull and steady. And like, that's not our aim. That's just not what we're, it's not how we're programmed, but we're looking for thrills. We're looking for fun. We're looking for, Um, help when we need it but sustainable sounds just like you're trying to flatline your marriage so in a way changing us to aim for maintenance is is sort of asking us to change the way we look at life which is good luck with that
2: yeah (laughs) uh johnny before we let you go wanted to ask you you know where else can our listeners find you? Obviously, again, the book is Rust, The Longest War. We'll link to that on smartpeoplepodcast.com. Mm-hmm. But um, are you blogging? Do you write elsewhere? You got any other books coming up? What's what's going on? I have a
1: website. It's johnnywaldman.com. There's no H in Johnny, J-O-N-N-Y. Uh, I think if you just look up Rust, you'll find me pretty easily. I have a whole bunch of funny stuff up there about the book. And I also, uh, I'm surprised you didn't know this, Chris. I am... Um, I'm one of the world's leading researchers on goats.
2: Believe what? it or not. What? <laughs> You're kidding me, right?
1: No, not at all. For five years now, I've been I've been compiling what I call a monthly. Uh, what is it? A uh, major goat news monthly. I, I also do year- yearly compilations of the monthly news. But goats are also a force of nature. Apparently, I'm into man versus nature, and you cannot predict what a goat is going to do. And they are wacky creatures.
2: What are you? What? Wh- <laughs> <laughs> is there plans to use this knowledge? Like, are, is there a book on goats coming out?
1: I hope there's not a book. No, there's something funny. Um, it certainly distracts me from rust. Maybe I i don't know. Um, you know, we're all obsessed in our own weird ways and goats is one of mine.
2: I love it. Well, <laughs> I, I will tell you on a, on that note, um, my goal is to own a farm one day, hopefully five to seven years. And I, I told my wife, I want a goat. And she said, "Why they're useless?" And <clears> I heard that they like will eat, you know, poison ivy, and they'll clear your your shrubs and all that stuff. Yeah, that's- it's,
1: these these are true things, but that's the least of what they'll do.
2: <laughs> what yeah. else, what? Why else would you have a goat?
1: Well, you have a goat for those reasons. Oh, okay, but they, you know they.
2: But they will get into more trouble is what you're saying. Oh,
1: that's what they're for. They're they're like trouble making animals. I did
2: not know that. That's hilarious. (laughs) Well, Johnny, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for being on the show. Cool.
1: Thanks for having me. It was was tons of fun. I feel like I yelled at
2: you half the time. No, no, I love this stuff. This is what, this is what it's for. So again, thanks for being so generous with your time. Yeah. Thanks
0: Russ. All right. Have a great day.
2: Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.
0: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Johnny Waldman If you did enjoy the interview, check out his book, Rust, The Longest War. You can find his book at Amazon or at your local bookstore. If you do pick it up on Amazon, don't forget to use Smart People Podcast's Amazon link. Just head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, click the Amazon banner at the top of the page, or use smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you're looking for an easy way to support the show, head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave a rating and review over there. That helps out the show a lot, helps us get guests, helps us get placed on the Apple iTunes rankings, and that just helps more and more people be able to find the show. If you want to reach out to the show, we're only an email or tweet away. Shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at at Smart People Pod. We've got some cool stuff coming out this month, so make sure you stay tuned and we will see you all next week. Smart People Podcast is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. It automatically rebalances your portfolio and reinvests your dividends, all commission free. Wealthfront manages over $2 billion and has saved millions on taxes for its clients. Visit wealthfront.com slash smart people to get your first ten thousand dollars managed for free.